0: Welcome to Viewpoints with Brenda. I'm your host, Brenda Ntambirwechi. And on this podcast, you'll hear plenty of conversations with African professionals, change makers, innovators, influencers, and entrepreneurs from all sectors. My guest today is Dr. Joanita Natu. She's a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist. She has a specific interest in cognitive and behavioral therapy. Joanita is Ugandan, currently based in Norway. She's big on wellness and self care. And she actually inspires me a lot. I've known Joanita since I was 13. And I just follow her for the wellness tips mainly, but she's also a big mental health advocate. We're going to be chatting about mental health, psychiatric care for children and adolescents, as well as mental health issues affecting
1: high achievers. So, Joan, welcome. Thank you, Brenda. First of all, I just wanna thank you for putting this platform together. We had thought that you were just gonna have adult conversations about different things that affect us in our daily lives. So I really appreciate that you put me on this. And uh, I wanna thank everybody actually who's made time to be present. Actually, people who have grown up with me just call me John. But after moving to diaspora, I started using my full name, which is John Eater. But I was born in Entebbe, born and bred in Entebbe. I love that town or city, whatever you call it, with my whole heart. I'm not really a Kampala person. I never knew anything about Kampala. But you ask me anything about Entebbe, I will tell you. So born and bred in Entebbe and then after senior two in Namagunga, senior three, actually, I moved to England where I went to boarding school there and did my GCSEs and A-levels. And after that, I trained as a medical doctor. After medical school, I was very sure that, you know, I wanted to work in England. For some strange reason, suddenly I decided to take a little holiday in Norway. And after that two week holiday in Norway, I was bought. I was sold. I loved it so much. I started to learn the language because in Norway, it's not an English speaking country. I had to pretty much delve in to start learning Norwegian because if I wanted to practice as a doctor here, I had to get into it. So I pretty much used a year of my life to learn a different language as an adult. And after that, then I could start practicing. Initially, I had actually thought that I was going to do GP, just work as a general practitioner. And in working as a GP, you basically treat all kinds of conditions, both physical and mental health related. But after working in a GP practice for half a year, I decided, you know, that's not going to be me. I cannot be using a lot of my time to see all these minor cases. So I decided to specialize in child and adolescent mental health uh, specialization after you become a doctor is usually between five to six years so I just started doing that and after five and a half years I was done with my specialization and I got my accreditation in 2019 March so that's when I kind of became like a consultant in child and docent psychiatry so and ever since then I've just been doing consulting work with uh, different clinics that work with kids, with families and with um, delinquency in uh, child and adolescence. So pretty much I work with all ages ranging from zero to 18, which is what they call last adult age here. Eighteen is pretty much you're you're becoming an adult. And after that, we child and adolescent psychiatrists cannot be treating you. So you have to be treated by the adult psychiatrist. Many of you probably wonder what we do with zero to three years old, but it's amazing because working in child and adolescent psychiatry is quite a 360 job, I would say, because you're not only dealing with these children and adolescents, but also with their families. I'll give an example of what we do with a zero month old baby. If we have like a mother who has postpartum depression, this could severely affect the child. And uh, you can imagine if a depressed mother cannot breastfeed, she, she literally had no energy to get out of bed. The child is there being neglected, maybe hasn't been fed or even been changed. So, these are the kind of problems we deal with the zero to three years old, which are very common in the Western world. So, yeah, that's pretty much my background. It was a complete coincidence for me to end up in. No, it's not something I had planned, it's not something I had ever thought of. So, yeah, a lot of my adult life has pretty much been a coincidence, but I'm loving it and I'm very happy to be making a difference to people's lives. Before I go
0: into the child-adolescent stuff, I just wanted to talk about mental health this past year during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people have had to spend the year isolated, away from their families, mainly out of necessity. And this has obviously had effects on on the mental health of a lot of people. We've seen an increase in suicide. But I don't know if you've noticed any other trends. And how do you think we as adults can navigate unique situations like this pandemic, And how would we protect our mental well-being and incorporate wellness and self-care into our daily lives? That's a very
1: good question, Brenda. But first, what I would want to say is I think that our mental health should be one of our priorities, regardless of whether it's a pandemic or not. I would advise people to just make a conscious decision to make your mental health a priority. And this, in a way, I think you could do by daily physical activity that in so many ways improves your mental health it's very important that people take time to pause and reflect and not always be in autopilot sometimes you just keep living a life where you're just existing you do the same thing day in day out you never take time to pause and reflect and let your mind kind of uh, marinate over what you're really doing that i would really advise people to and you know Just the general things of having those few good people around you, surround yourself with good people, a strong family or social network, people who genuinely support you and your dreams and help you see your dreams to fruition. These kind of things, because pandemic or no pandemic, you definitely need to take care of your mental health. I
0: think everywhere in the world, psychiatric care is quite expensive. And I think a lot of people typically don't seek out psychiatrists or seek out help for mental health issues simply because they cannot afford it. So what do you think governments or even physicians in the private sector could incorporate as affordable interventions just in our everyday life? How can we get encouraged to seek out professional help when we need it?
1: I think I'll start with the government part. I think that our governments generally have a big role to play in this. And I'll start right from the grassroots. For example, mental health generally should be a priority on our government priority lists. Usually you hear stuff like a lot of infrastructure is on the list. Now it's probably all this oil and petroleum. And somewhere on the list it says, you know, health should be a priority. But I think that even within health, mental health can disappear if you don't really focus on it as its own group of um, things to focus on. So. I would suggest on a government level to just make that a priority, not just bake it in the general health. I'll give an example of, for example, in Norway, they usually get specific area of interest which they focus on, for example, if they decide to do drugs and rehabilitation. So in one particular year, they decide to focus on that, invest a lot of opportunities in that, straight from education, educating more people in this field, educating more people to deal with drugs and rehabilitation and then send them out in the communities. In that way, they kind of make a cascade of people that are educated in this field to reach out to people who have these kind of problems. And when I take mental health, for example, it would really be a good idea if, when this is prioritized on our government list, that they actually train people to help people going through mental health problems. I'm not talking about training physicians or psychologists, but even just social workers, because a very well-trained social worker can reach out to people and actually be able to distinguish whether somebody's going through a depression or somebody is traumatized and then be able to point them in the right direction in terms of where they can get help. But I think that would be a really good place to start for governments to prioritize it and put a lot of economic investment in mental health training is one of the things and then of course schools have to be prioritized so within training you can train school psychologists or school uh, counselors I think uh, that would be the best place to start so that all the children growing up in schools know that if I have this and this type of problem I can talk to this and this person and this is how they can help me already when they're growing up they know mental health is a part of my health and I need to take care of it and if I have a problem I have somebody to talk to. So that's how I feel like the governments can start off. The private sector can also do the same thing, make it a much more decentralized service in terms of having psychologists available. Because a psychologist will probably not charge you the same as a psychiatrist would, but they'll probably give you a lot of help for you to actually continue, that your work life is not distracted, your social life is not distracted. Giving uh, types of help that do not actually require you to pay so much. I would think would do a lot of help.
0: And what work-based solutions do you think employers could incorporate into the workspace to improve mental health to encourage people to seek help for their mental health issues?
1: Well, to begin with, I would actually advise that every workplace has a psychologist. It's not very common, also here in Norway, that there's a psychologist on the job just to serve the people that work in that environment. It's a good idea. Many private companies actually have it. So that if you're going through any kind of type of mental breakdown, a difficult time generally in life, that you have somebody to talk to, to guide you and give you the resources that you need at that particular time. So I think that would be a good place to start for workplaces. But also be very aware of the, because usually, actually, I would use my workplace as an example. It's, Very easy to call in sick and say, I have a headache. I think it's kind of like an internalized stigma that you yourself feel like you can't just call in sick and say, I have anxiety or I'm feeling a bit depressed today. I can't come into work. So I think the workplaces should be a bit more open to to allow these kind of reasons for not showing up to work. Because already if your colleague cannot call into work and say, you know, I'm having a really hard time with my family and I can't show up to work today then if you're not giving space for that, then you're not really making it an open space for them to tell you what's going on. So I think that would be a good place to start.
0: And how would you advise, like if you have someone in your life who needs to seek out help for their mental health issues, but they're worried by the stigma around
1: it, how would you
0: encourage that person to seek out medical health? That stigma
1: is still quite a big hindrance when it comes to mental health and people seeking help. But the advice that I would give is don't let the fear of being labeled as a person with mental health issues prevent you from seeking help. One may mistakenly believe uh, this condition or whatever you're dealing with is a sign of personal weakness. You even start to think, how will people see me? How are people going to view me as a weak person who couldn't deal with this? So I would just advise people not to isolate themselves. Usually, if you yourself can't see the problem, maybe the people around you can help you, especially if you surround yourself with people that really care about you. They can help you, point you in the right direction, say things are not really going well the way we really know you how to be. So maybe you should get help. So prevent isolating yourself. And then, of course, it's always easier to think once I have a mental health problem then that's like the label that is the rest of your life but i think that people should not equate themselves with the mental health issue because even when somebody has let's say i'll take a very common physical uh, illness diabetes for example if someone has diabetes you don't you don't go and say hi my name is joanita i am diabetes you have diabetes but that doesn't necessarily define who you are so and that's how i also feel like mental health should be looked at Yes, you might have whatever you're dealing with, but that doesn't really define who you really are. So uh, there's a, a very common saying that says that you're not your illness. So mental health should also be seen in exactly the same light as physical illness is seen.
0: I know we've talked about this before privately, but we talked about like men and just the lack of, I don't know if it's a lack of awareness or the need to be strong. How do we encourage the men, especially, to seek out help when they
1: need it? In my career, actually, just even looking at the statistics, though I work with children and adolescents, we get more uh, referrals for females than we get for males. What I feel is that already from a very young age, the boys are kind of taught, you don't show tears, you don't cry, you're supposed to be tough, you're supposed to be the person who holds everything together. But it's a general thing that is going on amongst males. And to that, I would say, just like we all have emotions, we all have feelings, because our mental health is basically our emotional, psychological and social well-being. So I don't see why uh, males should be excluded from that. I think that equally have psychological things that they want to discuss or even their social well-being is equally as important as females. So males should not feel like they have to hold up the fort or feel like everything is on their shoulders. It's really difficult to get males and their egos to actually be on board with this because yes, they have problems, but how are we going to get them to seek help? And again, as I say, People should not really see it, see this as something that defines them. You can equally still have a mental health issue, seek help and still remain the male figure in your family that still provides, still caters for, for your household, but you go help. That's the most important thing. We, we need to already start their children to also make it important for them to show their emotions. I just want to shift to your practice
0: area, which is children and adolescents. Where do you see the differences in child and adolescent care in Norway, as opposed to, let's say, Uganda or other African countries? And what can be done if there are shortcomings? What can be done to improve them?
1: I'll say a little bit about how the Norwegian system works. In Norway, the specialization program allows for one to directly specialize in child and adolescent psychiatry without having to do adult psychiatry, which is considered the main specialization of psychiatry. But in Uganda, for example, you have to do adult psychiatry first for you to then subspecialize to be a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Already, if you think about the number of years that someone has spent in med school, let's say six years, for the most part, most people spend six years in med school, including the internship. And then on top of that, you have to do uh, five years to specialize to become an adult psychiatrist. And on top of that, you have to do another five years to do child and those in psychiatry. I think already that puts people off. By the time you're done with adults, you think, OK, you know what? I, I'm not going to do another five. After all, I'm a specialist. Now I'm a consultant. So why why get another subspecialty? So I feel like that already Cuts the numbers in half. People who would have wanted to do child and adolescent psychiatry already feel like it's too much. Why would I spend 10 years after I've become a doctor to do it? They could cut it down and say that, okay, if you want to be a child and adolescent psychiatry, just go straight onto it. Just like what they've done in Norway. So you don't have to treat adults. You just go straight to treat the children. That's one thing I feel like would really, really help in terms of getting more specialist field. Currently, I don't really know any child and adolescent psychiatrists practicing in Uganda. Most of the psychiatrists that treat children are adult psychiatrists. And I would actually think that it's a completely different way that we work because when we work with kids, it's more interactive because you're not only treating the child, you're treating them in the context that they're in. So most of the time you actually have to deal with the child, their family. You have to be in close contact with the schools, the teachers, the social workers. And on top of that, you have to be in contact with their social environment. So wherever they hang out, whether it's friends. So it's a much more dynamic treatment offer that we give to kids as opposed to adults because what the adult tells you is the problem, is what you treat. So if they choose to tell you about family, then you focus on that. If they choose to tell you about their social circle, then you focus on that. Whereas with a child, you're forced to focus on a much more dynamic aspect of it. That's the one thing that I see is the big difference, the specialization program. If they would cut that, make it shorter, then maybe more, more people will be willing to to venture into child and adolescent psychiatry. Another thing is that I also see is how the system is set up and how the infrastructure is set up. In as much as Uganda does actually have a portfolio for treating child and adolescent psychiatry conditions, they do have a protocol. I was on the website yesterday and I saw that they do actually have a well-written protocol but again a lot of people who are giving feedback on that protocol were saying that it's only written on paper but in practice it doesn't really follow through so bridging the gap between the primary health givers and the actual people who meet these children and the adult- adolescents who are struggling with mental problems or with even substance abuse bridging that gap is really difficult In a sense, these children or adolescents, they're in between this primary health care giver and the specialist. They don't really know who to turn to. And of course, there's a whole economic aspect of it. If you don't have money, then you end up really, really in between almost nothing. You don't get any help. Whereas here in Norway, everything is subsidized. So all the children below 18 get free help both for physical conditions and psychiatric conditions. Whereas in Uganda, you either decide to be on the government or you go private and you pay a whole lot of money to get help. So I feel like that could also be something that could be done differently to give under 18 subsidized care in terms of mental health. I think those are the two biggest things that I think that could be done differently or they're completely two different systems. So I wouldn't expect exactly the same, but I think starting with those two things, we could go a long way. And also I feel like in Uganda, we need to focus a lot more on the groundwork to be stable before we start shaking up the, the top systems. So for example, if we implement to have social workers and counselors in all the schools, and if possible in all the classes, so it doesn't have to be A3B3C who has a counselor, but at least there's a counselor that serves S3, for example, that they have somebody talk to and another one on S4 or S5 or S6. Uh, That would be a a good place to start. I definitely feel like uh, Ghanans would not be a very difficult group of people to get into thinking that this is going to be helpful for the community. I feel like a lot of people do want to be educated. A lot of people really do want to give back to their community, but they just don't have the economic means, maybe to go to university or to take the courses to be able to to affect change in their communities. So, yeah, I start from a very subsidized education, train people that then uh, give back to the community. You kind of took my next
0: question from me because <laughs> I was going to ask you next is there any effective or cost effective? ways the government could introduce certain mental health programs in schools for children and adolescents, and particularly those with special needs. But I guess you've answered that. Oh, I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: Just a little bit there, because I also feel like a lot of teachers, for example, could also get the basic skills of how to identify a child who's struggling at home. If a child repeatedly comes to you hungry, a teacher should be able to pick up that there's some social problems happening in this family. Just the basic ways of teaching, even if a child shows up at the nursery school looking like this, what should you look out for? A primary two school teacher should be able to tell whether a child is being abused at home or not. So those could be the basic things. But again, it has to be something that the government really prioritizes and says, okay, this year we're going to focus on making all the teachers competent enough to recognize this and this and this and this and then they put into place a whole program in the whole country just focusing on this because at the end of the day we have to really remember that mental health affects the way we think the way we feel and the way we act and if you don't take care of these things when the child is growing it's gonna cause a defect when they're a bit older and then the issues will start coming up or they'll start having conduct disorders or behavioral disorders. So it's really important to go grassroots, try and do a bit of preventive work. I think that the prevention strategies should bear more weight than the treatment strategies.
0: Well, John, thank you for taking the time and for speaking to us about mental health. Personally, I've just found the conversation very enriching. It's a much needed conversation. This topic is... Always swept under the rug because of the stigma around it. So I appreciate you coming and
1: having this much needed conversation with us. I myself, I feel like I actually benefited a lot from your questions. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Viewpoints with Brenda. To keep the conversation going, follow us on Instagram at Viewpoints by BN and follow me on Twitter at Kasabiti. That's K A S A B I T I. To hear more conversations like this, follow the podcast, subscribe, like, and please feel free to leave us a comment and rating. See you next time.